Do you know what proteins are, what they do, and why they are useful? Well, be prepared to be amazed. In this episode, Seth Axon will tell us about the fascinating world of protein structures and computational biology, and how his work of Bayesian model fits into that. Passionate about mathematics and statistics, Seth is finishing a PhD in bioinformatics at the Sally Lab of the University of California, San Francisco. His research interests span the broad field of computational biology, using computer science, mathematics, and statistics to understand biological systems. His current research focuses on inferring protein structural ensembles. Open source development is also very dear to his heart, and indeed he contributes to many open source packages, especially in the Julia ecosystem. In particular, he develops and maintains rvis.jl, the Julia port of RVs, a platform agnostic Python package to visualize and diagnose your patient models. Seth will tell us how he became involved in RVs.jl, what its strengths and weaknesses are, and how it fits into the Julia probabilistic programming landscape. Oh, and as a bonus, you'll discover why Seth is such a fan of automatic differentiation, aka autodiff. To be honest, I actually wanted to edit this part out, but Seth strongly insisted I kept it. Just kidding, of course. Or am I? This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 23, recorded May 29, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesianstats.anvil.app. That's learnbasedstats.anvil.app. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private LearnBasedStats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard hello my dear bayesians i hope this episode finds you well rested and safe in the definitely crazy year that we're living i am very happy to publicly thank my brand new supporters on patreon i'm talking about the fantastic zuelitini tuniswa gerardo salazar Ellie McDonald Fight, Bertrand Wilden, James Thompson, Stephen Oates, and Gianluca Ditana. Thanks to you guys, you are no more than 50 to support the show on Patreon, and I am so thrilled about that. This makes creating new content even more enjoyable and possible for me. And most of all, this proves that you find this podcast useful, and that's exactly why I started it. So, a grateful thank you from Paris. See you in the Slack channel. And now, let's talk about protein modeling in Julia with Seth Axon. Seth Axon, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks, glad to be on here. 
Yeah, thanks. I'm pretty glad I pronounced your name quite good. <laughs> it was the first trap of this episode for me, <laughs> because as a French guy, I have a lot of trouble with the TH sound in English, so... Well, at least you didn't accidentally flip the consonants and say Sex Athens, which happens sometimes. <laughs> I really... <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. Okay, I guess I'm not the worst then. Thanks for taking the time. It's great to have you on the show. I've already had uh, some guests from the Chulia world, and it's very exciting to dig deeper into what's going on with you guys in this ecosystem, because I heard you do a lot of stuff in Julia and probabilistic programming, so really excited to talk about that. But as always... I'll start with your background, because you're very much into math and stat from the beginning of your studies, if I understood correctly. That's right, so yeah. what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, what's your story and how did you end up doing very math stuff? Well, I've always really enjoyed math, going back to my elementary school education. When I started off in college, I was doing all the work for a two-year degree in math, but ultimately I ended up switching directions and going in the biology direction. Mm. But I keep always coming back to math, even during my coursework, whenever there was a life sciences version of a course, I would try to find if there was a version of it for physicists <laughs> and then take that version as well. So because that was usually more math oriented than what I could take in my program. And these days I end up doing a lot of math most days, not even necessarily just for my research. Sometimes it's just trying to figure out how to implement a bit of code efficiently. And math really comes in handy there, especially yeah. trying to get numerical instability out of some code. I've noticed that no matter what I'm working on, I find some way to integrate uh, some math into it. And uh, I think it's my bent, but most of the math I use these days, I don't really have any formal education in. It's just something I've had to learn along the way as needed. Mm. And I really think that how good you are at math is more a function of the amount of time you put into it than mm. any kind of natural bent. So yeah, math is just this constant thread that's connected my education and my research kind of all the way. Statistics was a bit more of a journey. I first got exposed to statistics in my undergraduate education and got really intrigued by it. But it didn't really become any focus of mine until I started my PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, the project I chose and the lab I chose was very much oriented towards getting to learn more Bayesian statistics. And even then, the statistics I was learning was mostly statistics from the perspective of a biologist, not necessarily statistics from the perspective of an applied statistician. And mm. so it was very much lacking in detail on the methods and even the core theory behind the methods we were using. Yeah. So yeah, it was really just a few years ago through discovering the STAN community and moving out from there, started to really learn a lot more statistics. And I'm still very much a student in that area. Mm. There's a lot more that I don't know than that I do know, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, but I have the feeling that it's the same for everybody. I mean, you can say, oh yeah, I know all of the math and I know all of the stats. So everybody's learning by doing. I remember even on episode six, uh, Michael Betancourt said that he didn't know everything. So I guess it's reassuring. Yeah, if he doesn't know everything, <laughs> then I guess it's okay for me not to know everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nowadays, if you have to put a label on it, I guess you do mostly computational biology. Yeah, computational so... biology or also sometimes called bioinformatics. Mm, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think I know what bioinformatics is, because for the first episode, I had Osvaldo Martin here on the show. That's right. And he does that too. He was kind enough to define the term for me and for listeners. So I see what you're doing from a very high level. Yeah. But I'm wondering, why did you end up focusing on computational biology in the end? Because as you said, you were very curious about math. 
a little also about stats, but it sounds to me that you could have done a lot of things with math and stats. So why did you end up focusing on that path? I guess actually I should go back to how I got into Bayesian statistics to begin with, because mm. one of my first courses I enrolled in, by mistake actually, in undergrad, <laughs> I think it was called bioinformatics or computational biology or something like that. It wasn't a mistake that I enrolled in it. It was a mistake that I was allowed to enroll in it because it was meant for graduate students. And oh. they assumed you had a background in yeah. computation and in statistics <laughs> oh, and advanced okay. math. And I, I didn't have any of those things. Oh, yeah. It's not the kind of mistake where you get back home from the Halloween party. You forgot you had to click on your assignment for university. And then you click on oh, bioinformatics for grad students. No, it's the other kind of error. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a mistake on their end, uh, but a happy mistake. I think one of the first lectures the professor got up and they were just explaining Bayes' theorem. And it's Bayes' theorem from one perspective as a, essentially as a scientific method in a nutshell. You have your wealth of, of prior information and then you have your data. And what you're trying to do is infer something about reality from that. And you have a hypothesis, but you have to consider many alternative hypotheses. And that's what the evidence term incorporates, is handling different hypotheses. It was really elegant and really intuitive. And the way that they explained it was computers are really great at deductive reasoning, but not so much inductive reasoning. But through Bayesian techniques, you can actually get a computer to do inductive reasoning. And I thought that mm. was a really elegant way of thinking of it. And it's only one way of thinking about Bayes' theorem. But it really piqued my imagination. And I remember taking the textbook for the course to a barbecue and just talking everyone's ear off about Bayes' <laughs> theorem. Were you kicked out of the barbecue in the end or were people cool with that? I got a lot of glazed eyes and nodding the heads and forced smiles and people <laughs> yeah. are very polite. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Seth, that's interesting. Let me grab another steak and maybe I'll come back. <laughs> as long as I'm eating steak, keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I was failing the class, so I had to drop and that was my introduction to Bayesian methods. And then I didn't really pick it up until much later, but near the end of my degree, I ended up taking a course where we were learning basic bioinformatics tools. So not implementing our own methods or running mm. our own algorithms. It was largely just using existing tools that are out there and even not really knowing a ton about how they work, but just understanding how to use them. And I found that really interesting. What we were doing was trying to take gene sequences from large back from bacterial genomes. Mm. And these were gene sequences that had no known annotation, that their function wasn't known. And so we were trying to assign function to them by largely searching against existing sequence databases, looking at their context in the genome, what other genes are around them, because sometimes that's relevant for determining function. And it was really cool. It was very different from the rest of the things I'd done during my undergraduate. We were <laughs> collecting data. We weren't even doing our own quantitative analyses. We were largely just trying to use existing tools and put them together in order to make some prediction that then someone could go and test. And so I ended up going in that direction. Actually, I ended up, when I graduated, taking a job at the Joint Genome Institute, which is a DNA sequencing facility run by the Department of Energy. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing research there at first. I was just doing education outreach. And so I was helping write curriculum to help mm -hmm. teach other students how to use these kinds of tools and also teaching workshops and developing web tools. Basically, we were, we're running an educational platform. And over time, I ended up kind of streamlining my position where I didn't need to spend as much time on those tasks. And so my boss at the time also had a lab. I was largely studying protein structures and cyanobacteria, which are like a marine bacteria, for example. 
And so I ended up looking to see where I could fit in that lab's research. And what they didn't have was anyone doing computational biology, really, or specifically someone with the ability to implement new algorithms. And so that's when I taught myself Perl and ended up finding my little niche in the lab. You know, took a little while to start developing methods. So I actually forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> what was <laughs> yeah, the question? That was super interesting. I had asked you about how you went into computational biology. So yes, okay, I guess so we got there. <laughs> yeah, you answered the question. Yeah, and actually, you answered my next question, which was going to be how you got introduced to Bayesian inference. And I can help but notice that's a really cool introduction to Bayesian inference. I really like the fact that it's by accident and instantly fell in love with the Bayesian framework. And even so that you go to a barbecue and bother all your <laughs> friends with the book and the formula. That's really cool. And also what I like about the Bayesian framework and not even the base formula, but just the framework is that it's not only a statistical framework and it gives you actually a framework to think about the world with a scientific method. And it's exactly as the professor you told about, I introduced it to you. And I always find this kind of approach very interesting yeah. because it shows you that statistics is not done in a vacuum and you can actually apply it in models, yes, but also in your everyday life. That's right, yeah. Even when you don't necessarily have the time to sit down and actually create a detailed model for something. Yeah. So that was kind of my initial falling in love with Bayesian methods. And then I had kind of re-falling in love again when I discovered <laughs> the generative approach to modeling. The idea that when you're constructing your likelihood, you're constructing a data generating process or a model for the data generating process. And in my field, there are a lot of Bayesian methods that don't take that approach. And so mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to reason about how good a specific model is if it's not generative. Just one of the really elegant things about that is that it lets you think in terms of things that you actually know. Like, what is the physical process that generated this data? You often have to have a better idea about that. It just, for me, that made it so much more intuitive and concrete as well. And that kind of made me fall in love all over again with Bayesian methods. It's a very interesting perspective, indeed, really of this idea of a generative model and the fact that it nicely plays actually with one of the most dreaded part of Bayesian inference when you start is like the prior elicitation. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you start thinking about your models from a generative perspective, it's really natural to go to the prior elicitation and think, as you said, I'm going to talk nonsense here because I don't know anything about computational <laughs> biology, but you would be like, I know the this molecule can't go any faster than the speed of light. So my prior has to put a, a boundary and upper boundary on that. And actually I can do even better. And just thinking about the orders of magnitude of what you already know about the system you are studying is super intuitive in the end. And it turns out it's also super useful to sample from your model and get good inferences. Yeah. And a lot of times it also makes it more efficient to do sampling. So it's nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, uh, you talked about that a, a little, but I'm wondering how Bayesian the field of computational biology is in general. Well, how Bayesian is the field of applied statistics? Uh, <laughs> I, I think like any scientific field, you have Bayesian methods, you have non-Bayesian methods. I think it's probably not too different in that sense. 
I can only really speak confidently about my little narrow area where mm. I think most of the methods used are not Bayesian. But it's interesting because a lot of people I encounter have, have almost a reverence for Bayesian methods, you know, don't actually use them uh, in practice mm. or don't necessarily know what tools are available to them in order to do it efficiently. And so, yeah, it's interesting. My subfield of computational biology is computational structural biology, where we study protein mm. structures and structures of macromolecules. And you know, in that particular area, I'd say most of the work is not Bayesian. But moreover, I think where it is Bayesian, it largely isn't, I think, drawing from a lot of the advances that have been made largely in probabilistic programming languages in the last decade. And so uh, I think we have quite a bit of catching up to do. But I think there's a lot of room to apply Bayesian methods. And one of the things I love about Bayesian methods in the sciences is that because you are actually constructing your model, they're essentially like white box techniques. When you're fitting your model, you know what the model is. And so it's really great for science where you're trying to a lot of times not just fit your data, you're trying to elucidate some function or some property of the biological system that you're studying. And Bayesian methods are great for that kind of thing. I'm hoping they, they catch on more as people start discovering these great probabilistic programming languages and applying them to their data. Yeah. I hope so for you too. But that's interesting in the sense that, yeah, my question was also to be kind of provocative. How easy for you is it to find authors to write papers? And is the pool diverse and quite big? Or do you end up having to work with kind of the same people all the time because the pool of Bayesian computational biologists is quite small? Well, I'm mostly drawing from people in my lab. Like I mostly work with others in my lab. There are a few people outside of my lab that I work with. So, I mean, it's a fairly small group anyways. I don't think if there were more Bayesian people in my field that I would necessarily be publishing with a lot more people. I will say, though, for, from day to day and who I'm collaborating with, which aren't necessarily the people I'm writing papers with, because a lot of what I do is developing computational methods, yeah. I typically am trying to figure out a factor out the computational pieces I need for my work into general pieces and work with others on them. So for that, I ended up working with people all over the world uh, who aren't even necessarily either using Bayesian methods or aren't in general working on structural biology or computational biology even. Because there are lots of ingredients of any yeah. method that come from many different fields. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. We're going to get back to what you do in the weeds at the end of the episode. But now I think it's a good time to talk about your programming journey because you're doing a lot of Julia these days, if I understood correctly. Yeah. And notably through the de development of rvs.jl. Can you walk us through your programming journey and why do you find uh, Julia attractive? So back in high school, I used to view the source of web pages and read the HTML and then adapt that to writing my own websites. That was how I initially got started with programming. And that was oh. all it was for a very long time was just something to play around with web design. And then near the end of my bachelor's degree, I took a statistical mechanics class. And that was a class where we basically were required to take some of the equations we were learning and basically construct simulations in MATLAB. And I went to the professor and, and told them, I've never programmed before. I don't know how to do any of this. I'm concerned this is part of my grade. And they just said, oh, you'll know how to program by the end of this class. So I just got thrown in and uh, learned MATLAB. And it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And then uh, I told you that when I started getting into bioinformatics, I learned Perl. And so that was my second phase. And then near the end of that 
my term at that job, I ended up switching to Python and it was awesome. I think most people who've written in Perl can probably agree it's not the most pleasant language to write in. And for me, it was a lot cleaner and more elegant. I only really missed the regular expressions of Perl. And so I switched everything over to Perl. And when I started my PhD, around that time, I was learning a full data stack in, in Python. So that's when I learned Pandas. That's when I learned Matplotlib and Seaborn, all these different great tools. It was awesome. So I switched everything over to Python. And that's around the same time I got into open source and open science and writing preprint papers. And I just love this idea of kind of everything I'm doing being open and transparent and that others can see exactly what I did, not just hear me talk, talk about what I did or read me talking about that. And so that was awesome. And then I got to this point in my main project where it was getting really complicated. So our lab software is written in C++ with Python wrappers. So I got to this point where, for my research, I needed to differentiate through these complicated expressions where it was like sums of products of matrices with matrix <laughs> exponentials, and the matrices were infinite dimensional with lots of structure, and they had complex entries. And I was just thinking, this is not possible. And so that led me to automatic differentiation as a technique. And a lot of automatic differentiation packages don't have great support for complex numbers. And so I did a survey to try to figure out what packages were available to me, because I'm not going to try to implement my own AD system from the ground up. And it, it took me about a month, but I got something working, a very kind of tiny piece of my method in C+. And then at some point I discovered Zygote, which is a source-to-source -source automatic differentiation package in Julia. Basically, it takes the source code for a program and emits source code for a new program that computes the derivative as well. And it had native support for complex numbers. So I thought, let me give that a oh, try. Yeah. So I took a weekend, and I, from knowing no Julia, ended up implementing a special array structure, which kind of Julia lets you implement your own array type as efficient or nearly as efficient as its native array type, which is awesome. Very hard to do in C+. <laughs> and so I implemented my own array type that had some of the structure I needed, and I was able to compute the derivatives I needed, and it was twice as fast with no optimization as what I'd gotten running in C+. And oh, so yeah. I instantly went to my advisor and asked for approval to switch my project over to Julia, and he said yes. <laughs> and so I switched over and you know, haven't really gone back. I think for me, one of the things I love about Julia is how productive I am as a developer in it. It's really easy to develop in, you know, as far as some of the, the features of Julia that are great. I love the generality of Julia code. Mm. So one of the things that you typically get with Julia code is that you can implement a package that does just one thing. It might, you know, introduce a new array type. Or there's a package in Julia called Chain Rules that basically just implements a bunch of forward mode and reverse mode automatic differentiation rules. And uh, those can, in principle, be used by any automatic differentiation system in Julia. So you implement these like very general packages that just do one thing well. You can focus in on what that thing is, and then those naturally compose with other packages. With usually with minimal effort, you can actually take the specialized structured array type and suddenly drop it into a probabilistic programming language, and it'll just work. To me, that's really convenient, really elegant that I can take the different pieces of what I do and factor them out and focus on them. And a lot of times I can essentially recruit people who are interested in collaborating on those pieces who may not be interested in my whole method. And all that without sacrificing any performance, really. So yeah, those are the things I really love about it. That composability comes from many things, but one of the big features that you'll hear people talk about is multiple dispatch. And that's basically the ability to take any function and customize it for all the arguments. I think Numba basically does this too where there's okay. like a custom version of the function compiled based on the types of all the arguments. And one of the things that lets you do in Julia is reach into the middle of someone's package and customize its behavior for your type. 
Mm. Uh, and so it, you can do like really powerful things with it. So that composability also means that everyone works on each other's packages. Uh, so it's a very collaborative environment as well. And so, yeah, those are just some things that I really like about it. As far as RVs, I first got started on RVs because I wanted to use it with some of the Julia probabilistic programming languages to analyze the output. I already had some RVs code running in Python, and so I was interested to, to try it out. Uh, and yeah. so I did a little survey with the Julia community, and there were folks who expressed interest in, in having an RVs wrapper. And so you can use a package called PyCall to call Python packages already from Julia. But one of the great things about RVs is that it has these converters from different PPLs into yeah. this inference data type that holds the output of your posteriors and, and your priors and all that. And so I wanted to add some of those to the Julia ones as well. So you could basically use it as easily in Julia as you could in Python. So that's how I got started with that. Okay, I have a lot of follow-up questions because this was super interesting. It's super fascinating how quickly you picked up Julia, actually. I guess that the language is easy to learn in itself, like Python, for instance, has a reputation for being easy to pick up. But at the same time, you were already an experienced developer with experience in several different languages before you picked up Julia. So I'm wondering how much of your easiness to learn Julia was due in your mind to the easiness of the language and how much was due to your already being familiar with some other languages like Python and Perl? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because it's a fair point. I think not just with programming, but with any language, with many languages, it's easier to add another one. I will say it's a fairly simple language to write in, very similar to Python. There's this one extra bit of complexity. So when you're writing in Julia code, you can write just like you can in Python and get basically the same performance. But to get good performance, what you typically want to do is make sure everything is type inferable by the compiler. And so typically that means that you want to write your functions in a way that the type of the output is known based on the type of the input. It doesn't take too much work to learn how to do that. But that's just kind of one of those things. If you don't do that, then you get pretty much similar performance to Python, sometimes a little bit better. But if you do, that's when you start getting C-like performance. I don't want to make it sound like you can switch to Julia and suddenly everything is just magical and works. I will say it's very easy to learn and write in. But of course, to write really efficient performant code takes a little more work to yeah. figure out how the compiler works and then how types are inferred and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like in every language or even parts of what you learn, mastery comes with time. That's right, yeah. But yeah, at least the beginning is less painful than other languages. And indeed, what you say echoes, honestly, what ChatSharer, for instance, said in episode 13. And also the compatibility of Julia was something Chad really appreciated too. He said that it was super useful to be able to just basically take building blocks that were already ready to use for anything you want to do. That sounds really great to me, I have to say, because you don't seem to have these problems of compatibility from one package to another or else. Well, to respond to that point, if you do discover a problem with compatibility, that usually means that one of the packages, when creating their types, maybe made something a little bit too specific. So like a common problem for, I think, early programmers, especially if you come from like a C programming background, is to add types to everything. So that can create problems with composability. So you go and you open an issue or open a pull request on the other package. And this is how people end up working on each other's packages. And ultimately, things end up converging to something very general and very composable with if a package gets used a lot, which is quite nice. Yeah, that's nice. 
And you said that you were doing also a lot of data analysis, data wrangling before. Of course, I'm guessing that's before giving the data to your models. And you were doing that in Python and you learned the whole data stack at the time. So I'm wondering, do you do that in Julia now? Are there tools like Pandas and SciPy and NumPy that are mature and efficient and established as in the Python world? How is it in this way? Yeah, so actually, I don't do as much data wrangling now as I used to. You lucky guy. <laughs> I know. These days, I spend most of my time implementing methods, which I do actually prefer over data wrangling, to be certain. That's good. I've used quite a bit of the stack in Julia for that. There are analogs to a lot of these packages. I think that the functionality of SciPy is spread out across a few different packages. Same thing with the functionality in scikit-learn. I'm sure the Python ecosystem being bigger and having more users and developers, there are, of course, things that exist in the Python ecosystem that haven't made it over to Julia yet. For Pandas, likewise, there's a data frames package that does very similar things. In some cases, these things work better in Julia than Python, at least in my opinion. In other cases, the Pandas version might be a little better developed. Mm. So it's different ecosystems and everyone's evolving over time. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. And to get back to RVs, actually, I'm wondering how does RVs fit into the, the probabilistic programming language landscape in Julia? Because I know this is a very dynamic landscape right now. And how does RVs fit in all of that? And maybe what are its strengths and weaknesses, maybe compared to other packages? Well, are you asking specifically about RVs or RVs.jl or both? RVs.jl. Well, I guess I'll lead with its weaknesses. From a Julia developer's perspective, one of the weaknesses of it is that it's essentially a wrapper of a Python package, which makes the composability aspect, you know, it really reduces the composability when it's calling out to Python. It has some places, some limitations, because it's essentially calling out to Python. There are some issues like if you have Numba installed in your Python distribution, Numba and Julia are both using the LVM compiler, so it doesn't like that. So you have to make sure Numba is uninstalled in that Python distribution to use it. But of course, you can always set up a custom Python distribution for Julia. So I, I think the weaknesses are fairly minor. As far as the strengths, I mean, RVs.jl is essentially trying to do in Julia what RVs is doing in Python. The idea is basically you have this kind of standard data format and standard analyses and useful plots and diagnostics you can apply regardless of what PPL you use to do your analysis in or you know, actually fit your model in. That is just really awesome. That's great for helping users of one PPL try out another one just to see if they like it because they don't have to make any compromises in their analysis pipeline, which is great. So my goal with RVs.jl was to make it as easy to do that in Julia as it is in Python. And so we do that through addition of a few custom types to enable us to do dispatch. Internally, they carry the Python objects and that like the inference data type that RVs has, and they're just transparently unwrapped when you send them to Python. And so it means that you can basically interact with it like any other Julia package, but you also are getting all those great features from RVs. And at this point, it has, I think, full feature parity with the RVs package. I think there are a few PPL-specific features that haven't made it over, like the ability to refit your models that I think you can do with RVs for like PyMC3 now. You don't have that kind of ability in RVs.jl. So yeah, where it fits is if there's a type of diagnostic or type of plot that you want that doesn't already exist in a Julia package, like MMC chains, which the Turing language uses, then you, know, you can spin up RVs.jl and you get the whole suite of diagnostics and plots as well. Yeah, that's really nice. For instance, if you're used to working in Python and then you have a project or you're switching to a Julia 
stack, then you can get the same plot and workflow as you had in the Python world, at least for their diagnostics and stats. So yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, and that was really one of my goals. I wanted it to be easy for Julia developers to use RVs because I think RVs is great. I use it in Python, but I also wanted it to be easy for someone who's used to developing in Python to give yeah. a Julia PPL a try. And even if you don't want to work in Julia at all, uh, what you can do is you can call out to a Julia PPL, fit your model there, use RVs.jl to convert it to an inference data, and then save it to your disk, open it up in Python and keep going with your data yeah. analysis pipeline. So yeah. it makes it a lot easier if someone wants to give it a try. Yeah, yeah, that's really great and well done on all this work you're doing for the RVs.jl package. I think it's a really good initiative and I hope listeners doing Julia stuff will, will give it a try. Well, I'm partial, of course, because I'm the team for the Python side of RVs, but I think it's a really wonderful tool and it helps you also get a more principled workflow for analyzing your model. I would say is part actually of your model, like how you analyze the fit, the divergences, where are your problems, in which part of the space does your MCMC sampler have uh, problems? I mean, you can do all of that with RVs and you can do that in a principled way. So it's really great. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So actually, I think you also have other interests than RVs. Actually, I want to talk a little about what you do with uh, protein structures because I heard it's a very complicated topic, but I find it super interesting. And I know it's a topic you really like. So let's talk about protein structures and what can you tell us about them and about your work on that. So some of your users may not be aware much about what proteins are. So proteins are the smallest machines inside of our cells. They can be very tiny or they can be a little bit bigger. They start out as a linear chain of molecules called amino acids, very small. And then they fold into a complicated three-dimensional structure where you look at it and you may not be aware from looking at it that it's even started out as a chain. And they can be very dynamic. They can be very stable or they can move very quickly, sometimes changing between functionally relevant shapes on the order of nanoseconds. And they really run the gamut. Some of them are very happy floating around inside of your cell. Others really want to be in an oily environment like the membrane of your cell. And those have to sometimes interact with the inside of your cell and the outside of your cell. So they're actually relaying information about the environment. So they're really very diverse. Now, why we're interested in the structure of proteins is everything about its function is really controlled by its shape and by what it interacts with. Also by its chemical properties, what the charge is of a certain area of the protein. And so traditionally, structural biology is studying the structure of proteins ultimately to get at function. It's a proxy for function. And to be clear, I think it's a beginner's question, but do you find proteins in all living organisms and only in them? Or can you find proteins, I don't know, like on the sidewalk or stuff like that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's only in cells, but also viruses. It's yeah. relevant right now that the virus is basically a bit of genetic material wrapped in a protein shell. But even those proteins were manufactured inside of a cell. So yeah, you don't find proteins outside of cells. Uh, if you found them on a sidewalk, it was from some animal or person that shed them along the way. You can't organize a protein party where everybody has to come with protein they find out in the street. No, it's not possible. That sounds like a great party. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come with your book about patient statistics and then the party is like top notch. <laughs> it's funny because there are folks now who are doing kind of de novo protein engineering where you essentially are trying to create a protein from scratch. 
Okay. You know, typically, you have some constraints that you're putting on it. You know, I want these amino acids to be in this position. Mm, and mm. then you'll use a piece of software to essentially try to model what the rest of the protein needs to be in order mm. to actually get something that's both stable and actually puts the amino acids in that position. So it's interesting. I think we'll see where that kind of thing goes. So yeah, we're interested in solving protein structures, but the most classical methods for studying protein structures could only be applied to some proteins. And these are still widely used today, but the basic idea was you basically freeze your protein and get it to form a crystalline lattice. And so now you have many copies of your protein in this highly ordered, very constrained configuration. And because they're frozen and constrained in this crystalline lattice, you basically have the ability to apply techniques to solve the structure because they're basically uniform and rigid. But that's not really a native environment for a protein. And so as we're getting better and better techniques, we're able to study proteins that are much more dynamic and that actually exist in a conformational continuum. If you were to take a large sample of those proteins and study them with some technique, you're not studying one structure. All your data is informed by basically some average it could be 10 to the 26 structures. So that's where my work comes in. I apply two constraints to what I'm doing. The first is I'm trying to do everything from a probabilistic programming perspective. So I'm trying to solve a structure, but not just solve one structure. I'm trying to solve a wide range of structures that satisfy the data, where doing everything in a Bayesian manner, I can then essentially put probabilities on whatever properties I observe in the resulting structures. So I can say, contingent on my prior information and my data, there's maybe a 30% chance that this property exists in the native structure. The other thing I'm trying to do is a bit more challenging, and that's trying to build models of structures that don't just model a single structure, but actually model a distribution of structures. So now I have two distinct use of probability distributions. One is to represent uncertainty, which is the Bayesian component, but the other is to represent the actual diversity of the protein shapes in the measured sample. Because our data contains both averages over that sample, but also temporal averages, because the thing is moving as we're trying to measure it. And so trying to explicitly model that is challenging. It's already hard enough to model a single protein. <laughs> it's a very difficult problem. And then it gets a lot harder when you try to model a distribution of proteins. Yeah. So my work is still, I think, very much in the early stages of that, trying to find ways to represent these things, putting uh, constraints on the system and applying assumptions that actually can make it feasible to not just model them, but because the data comes from expectations computed over that distribution, at the innermost loop of my Monte Carlo method, which is a numerical integration technique, is an integral <laughs> that a lot of times can't be computed analytically. And so that's where the challenges come in and... That's why I end up spending most of my time actually working on that, not necessarily on the actual statistical models I'm using. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can get that. That's really fascinating. My follow-up question would be like first, because it sounds like what you guys are interested in in this field is like understanding the structure of proteins and what proteins are made of. So my question is first, do we know if there is like a finite number of proteins like in organisms? And so we're trying to discover all of them or we already know there is, I don't know, 1000 millions of different kinds of proteins and now we have to study them to know what's inside of them. And the second part would be what are proteins for? And in the end, why is it important for us to know what proteins are made of? I think it's less a question of what proteins are made of. Figuring out the sequence of a protein is usually one of the easiest things to do, especially if you can determine the gene that the protein is encoded in, and you can even just go sequence the gene, but you can also sequence proteins as well. 
The hard part is really the structure because it's very hard to predict that in a computer. It's very hard to simulate a protein. I think your first question is really interesting. So one of the interesting things about proteins is that you can have quite a few changes in the sequence of a protein, but still have a conserved structure in the protein. It might have slightly different chemistry, slightly different efficiency, slightly different stability, but the structure might be conserved. And so this is one of the reasons why there's actually a lot of bioinformatics that's focusing on gene sequence similarity. And one of the reasons for that is because if you have two gene sequences that are, say, 30% similar, those could still have nearly identical protein structures, again, with subtle differences, even if 70% of their DNA sequences have diverged. And that's largely because of just how evolution works. Over a long period of time, you're introducing changes. And then if the function of that protein or which structure is related to needs to be conserved for the organism to be fit, then the changes that change that structure or that function too much end up being rejected, but the other ones stay around. And of course, you can have new functions being introduced along the way, and then you might have the structure maintain a lot of similarity, but then some parts of it might diverge quite a bit as it optimizes that function. And so I think as far as how many folds and different types of shapes are out there, it's been a while since I last looked into this, but I think, you know, if you plot how many novel structures are being discovered over time, it definitely seems to be plateauing. Okay. So I think for general structures and fold, I'm butchering these terms here, there probably aren't too many more out there. But at the same time, a lot of times what we're trying to understand in structural biology is the exact placement of different amino acids. We're trying to discover, say, binding sites that might appear somewhere in a part of the protein that we didn't think was related to the function, but that are very important for the function. And this is relevant for drug design. This is relevant for understanding what impact certain mutations that cause human disease are having. It's relevant for protein engineering as we're trying to maybe optimize proteins to, for instance break apart biofuels better, or one day engineering better foods that don't require essentially livestock. Mm. So I think these are all relevant questions. There's always going to be a bit of a need for structural biology on very specific proteins. You're really interested in this specific one, but you're of course helped along the way by the fact that if your protein has similarity and sequence to something else that's out there, then you already have a basic idea of what the structure might be. And maybe the actual structure you're looking for is only a subtle variation on that. So that ends up being used a lot in our methods. Okay, that's actually super interesting. I didn't know like working on proteins could be used for biofuels or food. Because I was gonna ask you, is it also useful to apply this knowledge of new proteins or better knowledge of proteins to medicine in the sense that can it help you like cure some diseases for which we didn't have a good understanding before? Also, can it help you understand some viruses like some new viruses, for instance, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think it's nonsense. You don't have new viruses appearing like that in the world. <laughs> Definitely, because structural biology is ultimately trying to understand the structure to get the function. Absolutely. I think if you know that there's a certain mutation and you have reason to believe that mutation is associated with a specific disease that someone has, and that mutation is in a gene that encodes a protein, then you know one of the next things to do is to go and see well, what impact did that have on the structure of the protein? Because that might tell me what actually is the thing causing the problem. Yeah. And then the next step, supposing I see that mutation causes a specific change in the shape of the protein, then the next question might be, well, how could I go about changing the shape of that protein to fix it? And so it is just kind of one application, but then you might be trying to come up with small molecules that could then dock into the protein to cause it to change conformation. And if you're able to find one, then you maybe have something that could be a scaffold for a potential drug treatment for that. 
And it's all predictions. This is a computational method, so we predict something. Someone needs to go and actually test it in the lab. But the idea is that with these methods, we can hopefully and you know, apply supercomputers to these things and trying many different attempts to solve the structures or to dock molecules into the protein structure, then we can hopefully speed up things like drug development by orders of magnitude and actually get treatments out there faster. So it's funny you brought up viruses. I'm not really privy to the details of this kind of stuff because I'm in the throes of writing my thesis right now. But at our university, we have initiatives related to SARS-CoV-2 and uh, there are quite a few structural biologists who are working on understanding the structures and the interactions of specific coronavirus proteins for this reason. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that's really amazing. Because proteins are everywhere, then studying proteins allows you to apply what you find to a huge variety of fields like biofuels, food, medicine, viruses. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, from a statistical modeling perspective, because the kinds of problems that arise when you're trying to solve a protein structure in a sort of statistical framework, they're just really bad cases of all the things that can go wrong in statistical models. A prior of a protein structure, or at least the most widely used prior, is something called a molecular force field. It's mm. essentially an approximation to the sort of quantum mechanical forces that hold a protein together but it replaces the sort of quantum mechanics with classical mechanics. So you end up adding a bunch of like springs, essentially. It's a complicated network of springs. And so what you end up getting is something that there's actually a very narrow region of like configurational space that a protein can occupy. It's actually like realistically, you're going to find a structure in, but it can actually transition between these different states. And so you end up with like super high curvature, heavy tails in your <laughs> distribution, extreme multimodality. <laughs> so doing anything in the space of proteins is frustrated by all the same things that frustrate statistical models. And one of the hard things right now is we just don't know how to come up with good parameterizations, like say the centered versus non-centered parameterizations in statistical models to actually like reduce the curvature or mitigate the heavy tails. And so oh, yeah. I think it's also very interesting if someone wants to take up trying to develop general solutions to some of those problems, like come work on proteins. We need those solutions. Uh, yeah. Well, first, it sounds like super interesting work as we talked to uh, Alia, but you guys have like all the problems with statistical modeling in just one model. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, yeah, maybe one last question, because I want to talk to you about another favorite topic of yours. But before switching gears, actually, when you're working on protein models, what's your actual data? Well, it varies a bit. At the moment, the data I'm using is something called nuclear overhauser effects. So this is a type of data that you collect when doing nuclear magnetic resonance experiments. And mm. I'm not really going to get to the physics of it, but essentially this kind of data informs nearby distances in the protein. And so essentially as you collect the data and you have to do some processing to try to even assign data points to specific structural features, but it essentially tells you roughly what the distance is between certain atoms in the structure. It's more complicated than that. And this is averaged over all the structures. And so I'm trying to use that to then infer these sort of distributions of structures based on it. Okay. Okay. I think I understood. Yeah. And then I have other types of data that aren't informing distances, but are informing relative orientations as well. For instance, I might have a protein that looks like a clamshell with two domains that kind of move with respect to one another. And so 
one of those domains might be fixed in my experimental setup. And then I'm trying to solve sort of the relative orientation of these two domains based on this orientational data that informs sort of the relative orientation of these two bodies. And that doesn't inform anything about distances. So to really solve a structure, I need to kind of integrate different types of data. And that's where a Bayesian framework comes in handy because it gives me a framework for actually doing that, integrating different types of data at the same time. Yeah, yeah, okay. Actually, I think we're getting short on time. So let's switch gears now and talk about another favorite topic of yours. That's related, as you said earlier, but let's dive a little deeper. This topic is autodiff. Yeah, let's get back to it. Maybe define it quite quickly for listeners and then explain us why do you like this topic so much. So automatic differentiation is great. The idea is basically that suppose you know how to compute some function, you know how to implement that function, but now you need derivatives of the output with respect to the input of the function. Mm. Typically, you would do that in one of two ways. Either you'd sit down and you'd hand derive these derivatives or you know potentially use symbolic differentiation. The symbolic differentiation is going to be really slow to evaluate. Hand coding derivatives, it's going to take a lot of your time, but also it's going to potentially be very error prone, especially if you have really complicated expressions, mm. like appear a lot of times in modeling physical systems. And then the other thing you might try is numerical differentiation. So this is where you might vary the inputs by a little bit and then measure the difference in the outputs. And so it's called like finite differences. You can approximate the derivative, which isn't very numerically stable to do and is also quite slow. It scales linearly with your number of inputs. And so automatic differentiation is basically for any given function, say it's addition, you know how to differentiate addition, how to differentiate multiplication, how to differentiate a lot of these like very simple expressions. And we know what the chain rule is. And so the basic idea is you could differentiate every little sub-expression in your program and then apply the chain rule to basically combine them all and compute a derivative of your program. And basically automatic differentiation does this for you. There are two different ways to do it. One is to take small perturbations in the inputs and see what it does to the output. Some is to take small perturbations in outputs and see what perturbation needs to be done to the inputs to get that amount of perturbation. Two completely different styles that compute the same thing, but they have different time complexity. So forward mode differentiation scales linearly with your number of inputs, and that's kind of the most intuitive way of doing it. But reverse mode differentiation takes one forward pass and then does one reverse pass, and the time complexity basically matches the original function. It ends up being linear in the number of outputs. And so that's typically what you see inside of machine learning packages, where you have either a loss function or in a PPL, you have a log probability. What I love about it is you basically can write down your program, but then also compute a derivative, and it doesn't really require much more developer effort. Now, I think one of the great things about a good AD package is the ability to actually write custom rules. And so you can also take linear algebraic expressions and come up with more efficient ways to compute those derivatives than you would get by doing the chain rule or applying the chain rule to the individual additions and multiplications. So yeah, without automatic differentiation, it would be very hard to do what I do. Yeah, yeah. And actually, maybe talk about how it's related to Bayesian methods and maybe how it enables to do Bayesian inference. I think one of the workhorses of most PPLs is dynamic Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. And so that's a technique that requires you to compute the gradient of your log probability. And if you're trying to write a PPL that can be used by a generic user, you really want something that's going to take care of derivatives for the user, because you really need those to be numerically stable, you need those to be accurate, you need those to be efficient. And so, I mean, really, I think one of the major advances in probabilistic programming and machine learning right now is the ability to have automatic differentiation packages. And if you notice, most machine learning packages 
dare I say, all the big ones, package an AD system inside of them. And if you look at probabilistic programming languages, usually those either have their own AD system like Stan uh, or are built on top of a machine learning package that has its own AD system just for that reason. And so the beauty of that is you can sit down and write your model and you don't have to worry about any of this complexity. In the Julia ecosystem, we have a few different AD packages and each one has its pros and its cons. And so the different PPLs can support different AD systems. And so as I'm writing my expressions, a lot of times I actually go to think about if I can get an extra bit of speed by coming up with a custom rule for one particular function. And then if I can actually derive just for that one function, then everything gets a big speed up. That's really amazing. And as you said, it clearly it's one of the workhorses of Bayesian inference. So we should all think automatic differentiation. <laughs> And actually, I think Colin Carroll, which is an RV's core dev and a PyMC3 core dev, did a talk, I think it was for PyCon of this year, so PyCon 2020, which was remote uh, this year, of course. And I think his talk was an introduction to automatic differentiation. So I think I'll put that in the show notes for listeners because it's a really good introduction about what's Autodiff, what is it used for, and how is it implemented in Python. I haven't seen the talk, but I heard him talking about it beforehand. He, yeah. he talks about JAX, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, JAX is really cool. So yeah, yeah. you should all go watch that talk and I should go watch it too. <laughs> Jason, it's really cool. Okay, Seth, that was really great talking to you about all of that. I could really talk about all these topics, especially proteins. That's super interesting. I didn't know about that, but I really love this topic. But we're going to call it a show. Before that, though, I have to ask you the two final questions, the two yeah. dreaded final questions I ask every guest. <laughs> so the first one is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, I thought about this. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems that it would be great if we had a solution to that if I really had infinite time and resources, what would I tackle? I'd probably be trying to make numerical integration as easy to do as automatic differentiation. I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> At the core of Bayesian methods, you have, say, a Monte Carlo method. That's just a numerical integrator. And then in the innermost loop of what I do, you have to compute an integral. And so if you could do numerical integration as easily as automatic differentiation, we could be tackling you know, whole classes of problems that we haven't even dreamt of yet. And yeah. so uh, I think that would be a great problem to solve. Maybe in a few decades, that'll be mm. a solved problem and people will say, oh, how quaint. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. That would and be then awesome. maybe I'll, I'll regret having said that's the problem I would spend infinite time working on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a good answer as of 2020. And it's a very mathy answer, so I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? Yeah, this is so hard because someone you admire is necessarily someone that would be fun to have drinks with. I would probably pick Alan Turing. I just, I don't know a ton about him. He seems super interesting. I would love to hear about what it was like to be Bayesian before it was cool to be Bayesian. But of course, a lot of things I think I would be asking for things I could probably learn by actually sitting down and reading a book about him. But as of right now in 2020, I'd say Alan Turing would be an interesting person to have dinner with, I think. Yeah, awesome. And I think you're the first one to answer Alan Turing. Even Cameron Pfeiffer was there for <laughs> episode 19 and who is a Turing.jl core dev, he didn't answer Alan Turing. Missed an opportunity right there. <laughs> no, but he's got an explanation. But I'm gonna leave you with that because as of right now, episode 19 wasn't released, so I'm not gonna spoil you the end of the episode. Yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to hear it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can see that. Yeah. 
Okay, great. Seth, it was really awesome talking to you, getting to know the Julia world a little better. And I'm sure you convinced people to think a little harder about how proteins are structured. That was surprisingly interesting, I have to say. And of course, I encourage listeners to try out rvs.jl. As usual, I'll put resources and a link to your uh, website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Seth, for uh, being on this show and good luck closing up your PhD thesis. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. I think it's great having a podcast that people who are just learning stats can listen to. And some of the voices you've had on have just been people who I've really benefited a lot from in my journey. And so I'm glad you're helping others discover some of those voices early on. Oh, thanks. That's really nice to hear the best feedback I could hope for. So thanks a lot. And good luck for your thesis. And I guess we'll see each other very soon. All right, sounds great. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbasestats.envol.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbasestats.envol.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Barbara Brinkman, Fit MC Lars, and MegaRev. Check out his awesome work at babababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.